little uh, mic issue. Not too big, though. Um, <clears throat> let's give a hand to uh, people who uh, serve each week. Our setup team, uh, they had to put all this up, and I have crazy ideas sometimes, and so they had to work really hard for that. And then those people who were greeting, our children's ministry people. So all the people that serve, let's just give them a hand. Now, if you would, I'd like you to pull out a uh, little insert that was in your program. It looks like this, and uh, it'll come up on the screen. Uh, it's an invitation. So if you could pull that out for a second. Everybody have it? Okay. Well, throughout this year, one of the things that we've been trying to encourage folks is to uh, invite their friends, family, co-workers who are disconnected from Christ or the church uh, to come and be a part of uh, the JAR. And uh, this invitation is for you not to keep for yourself, but to invite somebody. People are often very receptive uh, during the holiday season. Now, at the beginning of this year, we had a goal to increase our attendance by 20%. And we're uh, 10 months into this. We just got the report from last week, and we're at 18% increase. Woo, there you go, that's good. And we're not so much about uh, counting people, but we count people because people count. And uh, you count, and your friends and your family count. And so this week, uh, I want you to uh, take this and invite someone, even if they rejected you before, uh, try it again. And uh, you're ready to do it, right? Okay, when I say, uh, can you do that? I want you to all point at me and go, done. Okay? So hold on for a second. Some of you are like really, some of you got some issues, I think, here. You like to point at the pastor for some reason. But okay, so can, can you do it? And then say, done, okay? Can you do it? Done. done. All right, let's do it this week. How many of you have been to one fun farm this week, or uh, not this week, but this fall, or an, arch, or an orchard, a pumpkin patch, anything that kind of does that this fall? Okay. Well, my family and I, uh, a few weeks ago, we went to uh, one fun farm, and uh, we picked out our pumpkins, we went on a uh, hayride, we did the little uh, straw maze that they had, and uh, then they had this thing called the cow train. And basically what the cow train was, yeah, there I am. That's it. And it was simply a bucket. Okay? It's simply a bucket with four wheels and a teenage kid who has issues with smaller kids. And he drives around trying to throw off the kids. And my wife thought it would be so great. You know, you should bond with your daughters. Get in there. So I'm in this bucket, we're flying around, and uh, it was just crazy. And since then, I've had hemorrhoids every day and been the chiropractor. <laughs> Ten times. Now, one of the fun activities that they had also was uh, this thing called the duck race. And basically, what it was is there was this well water pump. It looked like this. 
And connected to it were these different slides, and you'd put a rubber ducky, and then you'd try to race to pump the water uh, that was in this trough uh, all the way down, and you'd see uh, who would win. And all of a sudden, when I started pumping that, I was immediately, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but all of a sudden your memory takes you right back to a place when you remember you were a little kid. And for me, when I was pumping that, I remembered being at some friends of ours who lived out in the country, and they had a well. And at the top of that well was this uh, water pump. And uh, we pumped it. And when we would pump it, you'd just see the water come up. And I was always so amazed at where did that water come from? And our friends actually told us that way down underneath the well was a river that ran underneath their property. And that river actually led to a big reservoir. And I just remember thinking how amazing it was that every time that you would pump, that there would be water that would come up. And they, would, they told us, they said that we'll never run dry. We'll always have water. There's a story that I want to share with you today. It's a story about Jesus who went to a well and he met a woman. It's in John chapter 4. And over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about this story. So you want to make sure that you come and that you invite some friends with you. And I just want to dive right into the story. And so I'd like to look at verse number 1, starting in John chapter 4. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were just the religious leaders of his day, had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. So John's his cousin. So here's Jesus and John, and they're uh, leading people. And uh, they're baptizing them. And there's kind of this competition that's going on, uh, at least from the Pharisees' perspective. But the Scripture says, although in fact it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but it was his disciples. So he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Jesus left Galilee and I think the reason that he did was he didn't want to be a part of this unhealthy competition that the Pharisees were trying to pull out between the, Jesus himself and his cousin John. And then in verse 4, it says, Now he had to go through Samaria. Now the reality is that that's not true. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. And there's a whole lot in this one little verse that I want to unpack for you guys today. In fact, I want to pull up a map And I'm going to show you exactly kind of where these places are so you get a sense of what we're talking about. You see, Jews in Jesus' day despised Samaritans. And so they hated them so much that they would never even walk into their land because they despised them so much. Now the reality is they both came from the same people. But Jews looked at Samaritans as half-breeds, as social outcasts. And part of that was because these Samaritans, they disregarded every part of the Old Testament except the first five books of the Bible. And then they just kind of created their own religion out of that. 
They built their own temples, their own mountains. Uh, They had all kinds of idol worship and false religious things just kind of creeped into their people. So no faithful Jew would ever set foot on Samaritan soil. And so you can see from the map what they would actually do. Even though it was closer, and it was a better line to actually go straight up from Judea to Galilee, they would cross the Jordan River, go to the east side, and then they would walk up there because they despised Samaritans and the land of Samaria so much. For Jews, they kind of sense that Samaritans were demon-possessed people. They believed that no Samaritan could ever enter the kingdom of God. And so naturally, that's why Jesus said, that's the route I'm taking then. You see, that's the way Jesus was. He always went the route, he always went the way where people felt they were the greatest outcasts. That's who he was directed towards. He was all about breaking down barriers. He was all about teaching and leading his people to understand especially his disciples, when he would talk about God, he wanted them to know that God was inclusive and that God would move heaven and earth if he had to, and he actually did when he sent Jesus to come and to be inclusive with this message of love for all people. So Jesus just had to go through Samaria. Verse 5 it says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sachar, just a, a little bitty town like Kamak. And near the plot of the ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph, so just a couple of heroes of the faith. And Jacob's well was there. And it's amazing to me, but 23 centuries later, that same well, if you go to this little town, it's still there. And they did some research back in 1938. They found that the well went down 138 feet. And if you go there today, it's a tourist uh, site, but it still pumps water all that time since then. So Jesus comes to the well, and the Scripture says he's tired from the journey. It shows his humanity. And he sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Now, a well can be a pretty lonely place about noon. Because women in this culture, it was their responsibility to pump the water from the well and then take it for the family for the rest of the day. But you would never do that at noon because it was scorching heat. So they would always do it at 6 o'clock at night and they would get all the water that they needed for the rest of the day. And so the only reason that you would ever go to a well at noon is if you didn't want anyone else to see you. Because the community all came out at 6 o'clock at night to get the water. Not at noon because it was too hot. So the only reason, again, you go to the well at noon is if you don't want anyone to see because everyone's in their house or they're working. Verse 7. When a Samaritan came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone in to buy food. Now there's a lot in these verses. I mean, there are all kinds of social rules, folks, that are broken. Jesus just breaks like all of these rules. First of all, someone of Jesus' stature who was a rabbi, a teacher of the Jewish faith, would never be with a woman, let alone at a well. 
Secondly, no good Jew would ever meet with a Samaritan. Thirdly, a Jew never drank water from a Samaritan, a dirty, filthy Samaritan. In fact, in that day, they said that if you drank after a Samaritan, it was like eating the flesh of a swine, like eating pig flesh, if you drank something or ate something from a Samaritan. And the disciples now, they're actually in this town. They're not at the well, but they're in the town and they're going to buy food. And I have a feeling that the disciples, you know, they're like leaving. They're, they're heading into town to get food. And they're like, Jesus is going to get us killed. I mean, we're in foreign territory. What are we doing here? And he wants us to buy food? What is up with him? Well, the woman kind of shakes her head too. She's like, here I am, sir. I'm at this well. What are you doing here? It says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And I think that Jesus kind of initiated the conversation. He comes to the well. I don't even think Jesus is thirsty. But He knows the woman who He's meeting that day that she's empty. There's some emptiness in her life. And He's the only one that can quench her I mean, why else do you go in the middle of the scorching heat to get water? You know why you do that? You want to avoid gossip. You don't want other people to be talking about you. You don't want the stares. You don't want the whispers. You don't want your reputation to go even further down the pipe. You see, this woman, she had a hardened life. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, in other words, he says, if you knew how much God loved you, if you only knew who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now remember, this woman has went through a lot in her life. She has been hardened because of life. And I think that this woman actually kind of has an attitude. She walks to this well and she's kind of got an attitude. I really do think so. How many of you remember the old sitcom Cheers? Just by a show of hands. How many of you have never heard of Cheers before in your life? Raise your hands. Okay, so that shows me how old I am getting. But if you remember, in the show Cheers, there was a waitress who just had an attitude. And what was her name? Carla. And uh, Carla just wouldn't put up with anything from anyone. And uh, if you remember, she just would, you know, go off on people if she had to. And that's kind of the way that I think this woman was. She comes to this well, and she's got an attitude. She's got an edge to her. I I think of her uh, similar to uh, a, a waitress that we had experienced at Bob Evans about a month ago. I picked up my daughter, Jordan, from preschool, and we were meeting on Monday. We were going to meet my wife there, and on Mondays we try to do just a little lunch, if we can, uh, with her. And so we get there, and the waitress comes over to our table, and she was the grumpiest Bob Evans person I've ever seen in my life. 
I mean, people at Bob Evans, they don't even know Grumpy, right? I mean, you walk in and you just feel loved and cared for. It's like going to your grandma and grandpa's house. Yeah, you just sit there and you're like, oh, I love this place, you know? But this lady was grumpy. And I just thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to make her smile. I don't know what I'm going to have to do, but I'm going to make her smile during this day. And so she comes and she kind of has this gruff voice. And she goes, we ordered the food. She really didn't even ask us. She just said, hey, what do you want? And so we're like, hey, we'll tell you, you know. And then she takes the bill. Like she sets the bill down first. And then she goes, here you go. Everything look okay? And I'm like, it sure does. Man, this looks awesome. I said, your service has been so great for us today. And then this is what she said. I don't know why you ordered your chicken sandwich plain. It sounds crazy to me. And then she walked away. That was it. I mean, we never saw her the rest of the time. That was it. Never smiled. Never came back to the table and like, hey, how you doing? You know, I mean, wow. And I'm, Jennifer kind of looked at me at that point. She goes, wow, you sure have a way with the ladies bunch, you know. <laughs> it just didn't work. And, I, and so I think this woman comes to this well, and she kind of has this attitude. And in verse 11, it says this. Uh, she's like, hey, listen, buddy. She's like, you've got nothing to draw from this well with but you can get living water? Where can you get this living water from? Oh, you think you're all that? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? He's like, you must, she's like, you must think you're really something. If you can just come to this well, you don't even have a bucket or anything, and you can get living water? Hmm. Then in verse 13, I think Jesus is kind of smiling at her at this point. He's looking at her directly in her eyes, and he's looking deep into her soul. And all of a sudden, her attitude starts slowing down a little bit. And he says, listen, this is a special well. But everyone who drinks from this well again will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them they will be, or the, indeed the water I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up an eternal life. And again, I think she has a little attitude that's going on here because look at what she says in verse 15. Well, sir, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming here at noon every single day. Give me the water. I don't even have to leave from my house. I don't have to have people gossip at me or look at me or anything else. Tell me about this water. I'll take the water. And I think she kind of spins around and she walks away. And then as she's walking away, all of a sudden Jesus is still at the well and he, he calls out to her and he says, Hey, 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 excuse me. Uh, can you bring your husband back and come back to the well? And all of a sudden this lady's walking and, and he says these words and it's just like she stopped in her tracks and she's like, How do you know? She says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You're right when you say you have no husband. 
In fact, you've had five. And the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. And Jesus is getting very personal with this lady. He's like all up in her business, but he's not doing it with attitude like she did. He's just telling her the truth. And what happens, folks, to you when people get a little bit too close to the truth in your life? What do you do? You know what I do? I change the subject. Right? That's what this lady does. She goes, um, hey, let's talk about religion. And so this is what she says. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Let's talk about religion. You know, politics, religion, no one ever talks about. No, 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 let's talk about religion. Let's just not talk about me. Let's not talk about me. Enough about me. And Jesus says, woman. He says, believe me, religion will leave you empty. But there is a time that is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, it's not about religion. It's not about places, it's not about mountains, it's not about temples. It's about the heart. It's about your spirit. It's about truth. And speaking of that, let's get back to you. Let me give you an equation that I think has been so key to me growing closer to God and to knowing what life is really like, how life works. This is it. The equation is this. My truth plus His truth equals freedom. Your truth, the truth about you, when you, when you put it out there, when it gets exposed, when you share the truth about you, and then you add His truth, His grace, His love, His mercy, the way that He will give you second chances all the time, that He wants to meet with you every single day. When your truth plus His truth comes together, folks. That is real freedom. That is freedom that this world doesn't know and this world can't take away. And inside of this woman, all of a sudden you can sense that there's kind of this light bulb going on. You can sense that freedom. She can see it now. It's maybe on the horizon. Five husbands, the guy I'm living with now, but, but maybe there's some freedom that's going to be there. And she starts thinking, could this be the one? I mean, my whole life we've talked about the one who was going to come. Who would give living water and eternal life and spirit and truth and forgiveness and inclusion to a broken person. And this man that I just met at the well, he's told me all of this. Maybe he really is the promised one. And verse 25 says this, She says, I know that Messiah called the Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Very interesting thing I found this week. 
This is the only time before Jesus actually is put on trial and he goes to a cross that he lets people know who he is. He doesn't let the religious leaders know. He doesn't let a whole bunch of other people know. You know who he lets know? A broken down woman with five ex-husbands and a guy that she's shacking up with right now. And she says, and he says to her, I'm the one. I'm the one you're speaking to. I am he. I'm the promised one. I'm the Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. Well, that's the story. You can all go home now. It's like a cliffhanger, isn't it? It's like that television show 24, click, 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 you know. We're not going to go any farther in this story, but I want you to read it this week. John chapter 4. You can read the rest of it if you want, whatever, but read it. And then next week we're going to talk about being filled up, and then last week we're going to talk about overflowing. That's why you want to invite your friends, folks. A lot of your friends just need a moment at the well like you're going to have in just a few moments. So I want to spend the rest of our time just asking uh, this question and trying to come up with some answers. What causes emptiness? When it comes to you and me, what is it that causes emptiness? You know, before there was Xbox or PlayStation 3 or Nintendo, there was a video game system, like the very first one. Any of you remember what it was? Atari. That's right. And when Atari first came out, uh, my family had two games. My parents bought it on Christmas Day. We played it for the entire Christmas break. People didn't even bathe in our house, you know. Just that. We had two games, Combat and Space Invaders. Anybody remember Space Invaders? Oh, yeah. There was, see, like some of you are like, dude, quit doing old stuff, you know? I'm old. I'm 40, okay? Um, but they had this really cool kind of uh, sound bite. You want to hear it? You hear it again? I don't know if we can. Thanks, sound guys. But that was it. And my brother and I, we would spend like hours playing this game. You know, it was on the television. We'd just play and we'd play and play. And he was older than me by five years, and I was only like six or seven. And I, I didn't know how to do everything. I was just trying to do the best that I could. And I remember he would uh, keep telling me, you have to fire there. You've got to move your Joey Stoke to the right. You have to push the red button. You have to move more. And it would just get so frustrating because, you know, all Christmas break he just keeps doing this. And finally, one day, you know, as a six or seven-year-old, I just had it. And I threw the Joey stick down. I said, Tim, you're not my boss. And the beatings began. (laughs) Game over. But it didn't stop any time that I would play that game. He would just get all up in me, telling me, you know, do this and do that and do the other thing. And I learned, you know, because I'd been beaten a few times, I mean physically beaten, that, you know, I just wouldn't ask him anymore. But in my head I would just be like, you are not the boss of me. You are not the boss of me. 
I just couldn't stand the fact that he wanted to be my boss. Now let me say this. When you say to the one who made you, I don't want you to be my boss. Don't tell me what to do. In fact, God, I think your rules are archaic. I think they're unreasonable. I think they're way out of context. They're out of touch with reality. Come on. This is the 21st century, God. I don't care what you're saying. I'm going to do what I want to do. You're not my boss. And friends, when you act like that, and all of us have been there before, and some of you are there this morning. When your life is filled with rebellion and defiance towards God and His authority, when you're in total disregard of His loving leadership for you, when you're filled with all kinds of anger, your life then will be filled with nothing but emptiness and trouble. And that's why the first thing that leads to emptiness is this. You try to be your own boss. You're trying to be your own boss. You'll always be empty when you try to be your own boss. This is what it says in Psalm 32. Let me give you some good advice. I'm looking you in the eye and giving it to you straight. Don't be ornery like a horse or a mule that needs a bit and a bridle to stay on track. God defiers are always in trouble. God affirmers find themselves loved every time they turn around. You see, friends, I've learned the hard way, and there are a lot of people in this gym have also, that God's ways really are the best ways. And every time you're not on that track, your life falls into trouble. And the reason He gives loving boundaries is because He cares for you. And when you follow those boundaries, actually His boundaries, when you say, you can be the boss of me, actually what you receive is joy and peace and satisfaction like this world doesn't know and this world can't take away. I mean, I've learned that obedience to the One who is smarter than me is just the way that life is lived out best. In fact, if you would, look at Psalm 85.10. It will come up on the screens. Let's read this together. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. So you see how those things go together? For love to exist, you have to have faithfulness. And peace and obedience, they go hand in hand. On the other hand, rebellion and defiance and a prideful kind of self-leadership just leave you feeling empty. You see, some people will disregard God's boundaries when it comes to sexual relationships, and it just leaves you empty. That's what the woman at the well, this Samaritan woman, was about. She had had five husbands, and she was living with a different man. Now, folks, pretty much in our culture, what we like to say is that no one is going to tell me what I'm going to do with my body, especially God. And friends, God is very clear when He talks about sex and that there is one place for that to take place. In marriage. Marriage between a man 
and a woman. That's God's ideal. And within those boundaries, I'll tell you what. Sex is good. It's wonderful. It's fun. It's awesome. God is pro-sex. Because He invented it. But living outside of those boundaries, it will just leave you feeling empty. It will leave you feeling empty and there will be some risk that hit your life. There's a risk of STDs and uh, HIV and unwanted pregnancies. And most of you are like, yeah, I know all that bunch. But I wonder if you know about this risk. And that is the risk of emptiness. It takes a piece of your soul and you are disconnected from yourself. So when you stand outside yourself, all of a sudden, you don't feel like the same person you were before. And I can tell you because I went down that path. I know. There's something inside of you that just feels like you've been bruised, that you've been hurt. I read an article this week from Cosmo. That magazine comes along with ESP in the magazine, which I read, but actually Cosmo doesn't come to our house. But I, I found this article this week. It's from a woman named Carolyn. And she writes about this novel concept of virginity and sexual purity. And this is what she said. She writes, What does this all mean in the discussion of the new chastity? What I mean... What it means, I think, is that despite the pill, legalized abortion, and economic freedom, our bodies are trying to tell us something. They don't necessarily want to be tossed around like lost luggage on a round-the-world plane trip. That's why maybe after a long night of some good times with some guy, you go off for coffee in the kitchen, and something, someplace in your body feels like it could cry. It feels like it could die. And it's not your body feeling that. It may not even be your heart. It's in the vicinity of your lungs, your solar plexus, where some Eastern religions teach your soul resides. Now, friends, this is a person who is writing who's coming from a purely non-biblical perspective. And she says, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be bruised to my soul. It it disconnects me away from the person that God intended me to be. You no longer feel like you're a whole person. And I think the woman who came to the well that day, that's what she was feeling like. She felt disconnected from herself. She felt disconnected from others. She felt disconnected from God. And if you live in that disconnectedness long enough, what it always leads to is guilt. And guilt always says, be your own boss. But it lies to you and it leads you down a path where you feel so horrible. It causes pain. It leaves you empty. Here's the second thing that leads to emptiness. Hiding secret sin. Hiding secret sin. The truth about secret sin is this. That secret sin and inner peace cannot coexist. Let me say that again. Secret sin and inner peace cannot coexist. There's a guy in the Bible by the name of David. He tried to do this. He tried to let his secret sin and his inner peace to connect. 
He tried to cover up some dark secrets in his life. He tried to wear a mask and to somehow just go through guilt and let it be unresolved. And this is what he writes. Oh, what joy for those whose rebellion is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those who record the, what the Lord, that the Lord has cleared them of sin, whose lives are lived in what? What's it say? Complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, when I kept it secret, I was weak and miserable and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Been there before? He says, finally, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me all my what? Guilt. All my guilt was gone. Here David said that if you want to not have secret sin and and have emptiness from it, he says, draw near to God. Be honest with Him. Invite some accountability in your life. Do you have one person in your life outside your spouse that you can totally be honest with anything in your life? The flub-ups, mess-ups, screw-ups. Just share it all there. Your deepest, darkest secrets. Is there a person? Because if you're not, you can't live the fullest life that God wants you to. You need to find somebody. That's why we tell people to get in small groups. Not because we necessarily want you know, people uh, you know, learning just more about the Bible, but what we want them to learn is not just the Bible, but to learn that they don't have to hide anything anymore. That's what Celebrate Recovery is about. For you to not hide anymore. For you to get it out in the open and all of a sudden you get freedom. Because when darkness is exposed to light then you have victory. Because if you don't, and you just allow your guilt to stay there, and you press it down, and you repress it, what happens is guilt becomes shame, and shame, folks, will kill you. You know, I think that's why this woman came to the well at noontime, because she had so much guilt and shame. She was hiding. She was disconnected from the community, disconnected from God. And she knew how awful her relational track was. I like what Lewis Meads, a Christian writer, says when he talks about guilt and shame. He says this, The difference between guilt and shame is very clear in theory. We feel guilty for what we do. We feel shame for what we are. A person feels guilt because he did something wrong. A person feels shame because he is something wrong. Folks, when guilt turns into shame, it can just mess up your identity. I want you to see this really cool verse. I was uh, you know, studying this week and this woman goes to the well at noon. And look at what it says in Revelation 7.16. These are Jesus' words. He says, they will never again be hungry or thirsty, and they will be fully protected from the scorching what? Noontime heat. 
Folks, you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to go to the well at noon. You don't have to be disconnected from people anymore. Your shame today can be wiped and erased away, and God wants to meet with you, just you, in this moment today, and say, let's go talk to the gift giver, the water refresher, Jesus himself. Here's the last thing that causes emptiness. The hole in your bucket. The hole in your bucket. Anybody here remember elementary school class? A little bit? Well, at Roseburg Elementary School in Marion, Indiana, we had like a concert every single month. I mean, parents hated Roseburg. Because every month, the music teacher would have us all get up there. And we would have to sing a song. And we'd have to smile. And we'd have to do different things. And I'll never remember what I thought was her favorite song, which almost killed me. But it went over and over and over again. And this was the song. There's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza, dear Liza. There's a hole in my bucket, dear Liza, a hole. And she'd say, no children, stand up straight. There's a hole in the pocket. And you're like, what? And then we would, would go through this long list of things to try to figure out how to fill the hole in the bucket. And the song would go on and on and on, trying to fill up this bucket. And I was like, let the bucket go. Folks, I think one of the greatest emptinesses in the world, one of the greatest sources of emptiness for you is that there just might be a hole in your bucket. I mean, the truth is that there is a a hole in each one of our hearts. God designed us that way. And if we try to fill it with everything else but God, it's going to leak all over your life. There's a guy in the Bible by the name of Solomon. He tried to figure out what would satisfy his greatest need. He admitted that there was a hole in his heart. He wanted to know the meaning of life. And this is what he decided. He goes, I'm a king. I'm the greatest king. I have unlimited resources. I'm going to find the meaning to life. And he built incredible palaces. And he built uh, parks and reservoirs. And he allowed himself to be in unbridled sexual encounters and choice wine, and if he could do it, he tried it, and he did everything that he possibly could. And at the end of that experiment, this is what he said, so I became greater than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. And with it all, I remained clear-eyed so that I would, uh, could evaluate all things. Anything I wanted, I took. I did not restrain myself from any joys. I even found great pleasure in hard work an additional reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything that I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. And Solomon finally realized that you can try to go for anything and everything, but outside of God, folks, you know what you have? A leaky bucket. In fact, later on, at the end of his life, Solomon comes to the exact same conclusion. He says this, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. 
Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the duty of every human being. And here's the thing. There's a hole in your bucket, folks, and the only thing that can fill it is God Himself. And so you have to accept His authority. You have to do life His way. I want to kind of give you the the truth about God, and the band's going to come up. And um, this is the truth. My hope today, and we're just going to spend five minutes here for you to connect with God, is that your truth can get matched with God's truth and that you can really start living some freedom in your life. I want to give you some scriptures at the end here just for you to be able to realize and understand the truth about God. Here's the first one, Psalm 107.9. It says this, For he satisfies the thirsty, and he fills the hungry with good things. That's what God does. Isaiah 51, God says this, Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. And then he goes on in in verses 2 and 3, and he says, Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen, and I will tell you where to get food that is good for the soul. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, for the life of your soul is at stake. finally, Jesus, at the end of the Bible, he tells us these words. He says, come. He says, come. Let those who are thirsty, let them come. And let all those with this free gift of the water of life. He says, come. He says, come. Each of you uh, walked in today, and in your program there was a little sheet. looks like this. I'd like you to pull that out. This right here was probably worth the, the price of admission today. I'd like you to pull it out. I'd like you to look at it. There's, there's pens in front of you. But I was thinking about how we were going to end today, and... Uh, This was my thought. That some of us probably just need a little time at a well. Some of us just need to take where it is that you feel empty and like pin it. Put it on here. No one's going to see this. No one's going to talk about it. It's just between you and God. But to write down, where do you feel empty right now in your life? Don't look at anyone's paper. This is just between you and God. And, and if you would, if you feel comfortable doing so, I'd really encourage you to come to the well today and meet the one who can quench your thirst. And that you just give your emptiness to Him. Whatever it is, you just say, Jesus, I can't do it anymore. This empty peace in my life. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's you're angry at something. 
Maybe it's an addiction that you're dealing with. Whatever it is, that thing in your life that you feel empty, Jesus says, come. Hey, let's just meet at the well. Let's meet at the well. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray right now through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would come and you would speak to your people. God, these are your kids. You love them so very much, but some of them are carrying some real emptiness in their life right now. And all of us, God, feel empty somewhere. And so I pray right now, God, that as we kind of close this time, that they would just hear you say, Come. Come. And God, they could leave their emptiness at the well and that they could go through this week knowing that they're filled up with the water giver who can quench every ounce of emptiness. Come right now, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to receive you. Speak to our hearts. And God, after we go to the well, let us come back and let us sing together that all of us who are thirsty, God, we can have that thirst met today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So whenever you're ready, just come to the well.
get an ounce of you, God. We get a full dose of you. And Lord, today's one of those days. God, we're so weak and empty without you. And sometimes, God, we just need a little replenishment from your well. to come to a well and to know that there is someone who is head over heels in love with us, who takes our emptiness, God, and fills us to overflowing. God, I don't always sense this, but I sense it this morning, that there are some folks, God, that maybe they didn't come up because they didn't want people to see them or whatever. In a little bit, I'm going to release everybody and everyone's going to be gone. But some people, God, still need a moment at the well. And so prayer team, if, if you guys can come up here and if anyone would like prayer for something, they can have that. And so Jesus, we just ask now that as we've given you our emptiness, we pray that you fill us and use us so that your name would be made great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. If you'd like prayer for anything, come on up.